electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramer. I've got to be able to make friends. I'm just trying to make a little money. My job, I just entertain you, but to educate, to teach. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. Wall Street's endless confidence in the People's Republic of China never seems to stop. No matter how disappointing the growth numbers we see out of the Chinese economy, and they are plenty disappointing. People keep wanting to buy American stocks that are seen as having major Chinese exposure. And that includes days like today, where the Dow gained 210 points, S&P advanced 0.24%, NASDAQ edged up 0.18%. For decades, decades, China did have a tremendous scorching economy. That hasn't been true for some time. The idea of buying any stock because of its Chinese exposure is downright moronic. Because China's doing terribly right now. It's got the exact opposite problem for our country, an economy that's slowing to the point where you have to start wondering if they're sinking into a serious recession. China's got deflationary data, too, which can quickly spiral into a psychology of ever lower prices and wages. Deflation can be disastrous. Worse, China's got a 5.2% unemployment rate with youth unemployment at an incredible 20.8%. And, hey, come on, man. Those are the official regime-approved numbers. You don't get 21% youth unemployment in a growth economy. But we still have muscle memory in our investment. Right around here. All around here. Muscle memory telling us that the Chinese market is the best in the world. So any company with a connection to it will always blow away the numbers. We've had a parade of American officials going to see China lately, culminating in a four-day trip by Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, one that she says was constructive. They're always constructive. She met with high-level Chinese officials who agreed to more cooperation. They always agreed to more cooperation. We're told the earnest dialogue will continue. There are always promises of earnest dialogue. The truth is, though, for years our country was the one that wanted constructive dialogue and positive engagement. China was the locomotive of global growth. All aboard! And we needed a piece of it. Maybe I feel like the situation is reversed. China now needs a better relationship with us than we need them. The Communist Party has endlessly tried to stimulate their economy, failing repeatedly, in part because all the stimulus seems to be related to real estate, which is never going to be a growth industry in a country with no growth in its population. All that said, American investors simply won't give up. They just have to have something that stands inside the thesis that China remains the promised land for anyone nimble enough to sell into their economy, even as their economy is falling apart. Now, discussions with Chinese growth always start with Apple, which has a strong franchise there. But Apple's losing a big chunk of its weighting in the Nasdaq 100. We just learned about this, along with some of the rest of the Magnificent Seven, which caused sellers to flee from this one. Uh, they want to get out ahead of the re-weighting on the 24th. It happened to all the stocks. Don't worry about it. But when you look deeper, you can see this trade still playing out. Let me go down the list of usual suspects. This angers me so much. I need you to focus. 
First, it's Caterpillar, right? Now, long ago, Caterpillar decided it had to diversify away from China. Too often, the business would swing with the vicissitudes of the Chinese economy, not ours. That is no longer the case, people. There are so many other important markets like the U.S. oil market, the U.S. infrastructure market, the U.S. data center market, and the minerals markets worldwide. As we see more and more federal infrastructure money flow from the states to the road builders, you better believe Caterpillar is going to get a flood of orders. And look, even though it's much less China-oriented than it used to be, when people think our relationship with the Chinese government has improved, they always buy the stock in Caterpillar. Hey, we took the unthinkable stance of actually letting a little Caterpillar stock go today for the trust. Something we'll talk about when we have our investing confab on Wednesday at noon. Cat's terrific story, but it, it, it's not a China story. And I'm afraid the three-point gain and a few points that are leading up to it may not hold. Hey, how about Starbucks? Another stock that's rallied three points today. Starbucks has a definitive plan to grow in China. They're putting up new locations here every nine hours. There are already more than 6,200 Starbucks in China with a plan to get to 9,000 by 2025 versus 16,000 in the U.S. But when you hear that our government's relationship with China could be on an even keel, well, the stock gets bought. Given that Starbucks sold off hard when things seemed rocky, I understand why it jumped today. But I say this. Give me a break. Last week, I covered the sad saga that is Nike, which seems to have lost its way as it's doing a huge amount of business but not making a lot of money from it, which is what I care about. China's on fire for Nike, okay? They're not seeing any slowdown whatsoever, despite the high price points for many of their products. But China only makes up 14% of Nike's business versus 42% for North America, 26% for the Europe, Middle East, and Africa region. The idea that Nike's a China stock is a ridiculous pipe dream. Still, I, I get it. Nike's partnered with China's Ministry of Education to improve the health of several million kids. But unless the government decides to buy everyone a pair of Nikes as a way to stimulate the economy, you're making a big mistake if you buy Nike because of diplomacy. Now, there's one stock that can always be counted on reliably to fulfill the role of, of a hack China play, and that's Wind Resorts. Hey, Trust owns it. Casino company, 75% Macau, even as good business in Vegas and Boston, too. And that's why Wind stock rallied almost six points today. I think people are looking at pre-COVID numbers with Wind because Vegas and Boston are growing now, and the Macau business is just not as good as it used to be. But there's one stock that I am willing to endorse as a genuine China play, a nouveau China opportunity. And it's Ralph Lauren. To quote their last conference call from May, we are strongly encouraged by our continued brand momentum in China following the country's reopening. CEO Patrice LeVay, smart fella, says we drove full year China sales up more than 20 percent in constant currency, including acceleration of fourth quarter sales up 40 percent. Looking ahead, we expect China to remain one of our fastest growing markets. End quote. There, finally, truth. Where do I come down on these? Look, I, I, I support buying Ralph Lauren as long as the American business holds up. I can see buying Starbucks as long as their cold brewed sales continue to accelerate in the U.S. But the days when you could invest in these stocks purely based on China growth, those days are over. For years, they were the China plays until we learned our lesson that the Chinese economy just doesn't use enough oil to move the needle. And if it does, it's buying that oil at discount from Russia. That was the way we used to do it, right? Not from us. I don't think you're going to make any money, for instance, buying Occidental Petroleum or Exxon as China recovery plays. These things aren't working. So let me give you the bottom line. Go ahead. Knock yourself out imagining how China exposure can boost the growth of American companies. But I think you'd be better off finding a Chinese company that can accelerate its growth by being in America. Because we are in much better shape than they are right now. Let's go to Bob in Vermont, please. Bob. Hi, Jim. Bob, what's uh, going on, my back. friend? 
Hey, not much. Just raining here in the Green Mountains and uh, waiting for it to stop. All right. I hear you. Hey, listen, it's good for the garden. What's going on? <laughs> I, uh, around the first of the year, I bought an initial position in Devon Energy. Right. Um, six months in, I'm uh, doing a little uh, homework comparing it to, like, Emerson Electric, and it looks like we're slightly divergent. And I'm hoping it's more than just a short bad news story, and maybe you can help me understand yeah, that. Yeah, sure. Well, you know, Devin is, of course, it turns out to be uniquely levered to oil, and oil's been down big, so Devin's stock's been down big. Emerson made an acquisition that really kind of screwed up their business for a while, but now that's past them, and I think that Emerson's actually the one to be in. My chapel trust owns it. I can't believe I'm going to be speaking positively about Emerson at our Wednesday meeting. Now, that will be a shocker that you must sign up and listen to. Bob in Florida, Bob! Jimmy, chill. Thanks for taking my call. How you doing? Chill man. Just chill man came back from Iceland. Real chill. What's happening? Oh, nice. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Hey, so I was in this local retail store recently, and I just, you know, an article came out, 65% of its workforce is going automated by 2025. I mean, this store's packed, and I actually like using their self-printout. Is, is Walmart in my year? Yes, I think Walmart is underrated. I think the business is good. I think the way they've been sourcing products is good. I like their grocery. I was surprised the stock only is still in the 150s. I think you have a winner. Why don't we own it for the trust? Because we own Costco, their biggest and best competitor. I think in general, you are better off fighting a Chinese company that can accelerate its growth by being in America. Because we're in much better shape than they are right now. Why don't people know that? Oh, man, money tonight. We're starting to see some of the infrastructure bill spending make its way to a host of sectors. So what stocks could better improve this new flow of money? I bet you you don't know the name, so you better watch. And last week, we got some important data on electric vehicle sales in the first half of the year. And I'm sharing the key points that I think can help you making some terrific investment opportunities for the remainder of 2023. And former SEC Chairman Jay Clayton and former CFTC Chairman Tim Massett published an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal this weekend offering guidance for the government to how to regulate crypto. And I'm learning more about the plan from Tim himself. You will love this interview. So stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. 
It's time to take your career to the next level. With over 150 graduate degree programs, the Catholic University of America, located in Washington, D.C., provides world-class academics with a student experience that educates the whole person, mind, body, and spirit. Whether your professional calling is in engineering, nursing, social work, or any of our other exceptional degree programs, encounter the best of everything that Catholic University has to offer and discover the best in yourself. Learn more today at catholic.edu forward slash gradadmissions. Now into the second half of 2023, when the time of year that money managers start trying to figure out their strategy for 2024. But how the heck do you figure it out when we barely get our arms around the present? We don't know if our economy is going to have a crash landing or a soft landing or no landing. Well, you know, I think the plane just keeps cruising along because the Federal Reserve can't make it descend. So many experts have been waiting for an inevitable recession since the Fed started tightening, not me. But the recession just hasn't come. And now we're wondering if it ever will. The Fed itself seems divided on how many more times they'll need to hit us with more rate hikes before they can declare a victory. It's what I call a real confusing moment. At times like this, what do you do? When you don't know what's going to happen short term, you should fall back on long term secular themes. Big, giant stories that transcend the broader economy, including the access of the Federal Reserve and anything near term. And right now, we've got a powerful one, one of the biggest I've ever seen in my whole life. I'm talking about the wave of government spending, started by President Biden, by the way, that's scheduled to come from a few huge pieces of legislation passed in 2021 and 2022 that I think we almost forgot about. I sometimes complain about how these spending bills made the inflation situation a lot worse, especially wage inflation. But the silver line here is that you can simply own shares in the companies that are about to feast at the federal trough, and you're going to beat inflation. Love it or hate it, President Biden and his crew have passed a bunch of massive spending bills. Now, first, there was the uh, final COVID stimulus package, which is mostly in the rearview mirror at this point. Then in November 2021, he signed the Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill, officially known as the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. Okay, so we get this one from COVID and then we get this one, which is really huge. And then mostly for a benefit of a couple of industries that we follow very closely, we got the Chips and Science Act. That's a massive subsidy to domestic semiconductor manufacturing with a ton of other stuff tacked on. And shortly after Biden signed the so-called Inflation Reduction Act, that's the IRA, everybody calls, and that was uh, more of a climate bill than anything else. Some people question whether inflation should even, whether that it doesn't increase inflation, but that's neither here nor there because we're trying to make money for you in stocks. Now, while all this happened a while ago, you got to know that it can take ages for the federal government to spend the money, especially on these big projects. Money goes out to the states. So these funds are just starting to go out now, something that should continue for the next couple of years. So all this that you see, it's just kicking in. That's what makes these spending bills such a powerful long-term theme. 19, you know, look, this is like 2024 is probably Probably going to be the first year that all this money really comes into play. So this week, I want to go through each major piece of legislation, starting with the infrastructure bill from late 2021. The Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act included roughly $550 billion in new spending on roads, bridges, public transit systems, electric vehicle infrastructure, water infrastructure, the power grid, and broadband internet. This kind of bill is a prolonged process where the money gets divvied up and sent to states, which then identify the top priorities before soliciting bids for the relevant contract. Boy, does it take a long time. And long story short, the money's only just starting to reach actual companies this year, and it should last for years. I've met with a couple people behind the 
scenes about this. And I got to tell you, I was absolutely shocked that the money isn't already in the hands of the general contractors. It's not. Very little of it's been spent. So let's figure out who benefits. All right, let's start with some of the most obvious winners, the companies that provide the materials that will be used for the road work in the infrastructure vote. Now, sometimes I don't like to overthink things. Who's the biggest? Well, Martin Marietta Materials, which makes aggregates, concrete, cement, and asphalt. Last year, the stock fell 23% because of recession fears, but it's now up more than 30% for 2023. With almost all of these gains coming in the second half as people realize, here comes the money. In fact, it's up 14% since we last spoke to the CEO, Ward Nye, whom I liked so much. That was just two months ago. Why? Because the government checks are finally coming. And Nye says this will be three to four years of tailwind for the business. Even after this run, I like Martin Marietta here at 24 times forward earnings. Ultimately, I'm betting the stock will prove to be a lot cheaper in retrospect because the company keeps blowing away the earnings estimates. I could say the same thing about competitors like Vulcan Materials, really good companies. Some materials don't know them that well, but I like Martin Marietta best. On top of materials, you also need construction equipment for all this bridge and road building. And that's precisely, precisely why we own the stock of Caterpillar for the Chapel Trust. And it's why the stock shot up more than 20% just since the end of May. Big short position here. People didn't understand what's happening, which is the stuff that we're looking at. The Infrastructure Investment Jobs Act overruns any short seller. Now, in the spirit of full disclosure, we did trim some of our cap position for the trust today, selling 30 out of 370 shares. That's pure discipline. When you get a big gain, as I talk about in Wednesday's conference call that you must get in on, you have to do the responsible thing and take something off the table. Table, remember, conviction matters a lot. Discipline matters more. Now, if you don't already own Caterpillar, I recommend buying some a little bit lower. The stock trades at only 13 times next year's earnings estimates. I think it'll end up looking like a real bargain as all this infrastructure spending kicks in. Now, how about John Deere? This one's real cheap. It sells for less than 13 times earnings. Nice construction equipment business there. Although they also, of course, have tons of agriculture exposure, and people are a little worried about that. I am less bullish on ag as commodity prices come down year over year. But you could get an opportunity here if deer gets beaten down by its farming exposure. That's when you would pull the trigger. Caterpillar's not like that, okay? Caterpillar's good. John Deere has other things going for it that aren't as pure. What else works? I see the water infrastructure business making an absolute killing from the IIJA. Now, there's $55 billion earmarked for cleaner drinking water investments here. I know most Americans take clean water for granted. That's wrong. As we've seen from the disasters in Flint, Michigan and Jackson, Mississippi, things can get real bad when something goes wrong with your water system. Who wins here? Well, okay. First one is Xylem. They make water and wastewater pumps along with treatment and testing equipment. That's a good one. But how about this pent air? You don't hear much about these guys at all. They specialize in water pumps and filtration pumps. Now, pent air is up 42% year-to-date, but Xylem stock is basically flat. That sounds good, doesn't it? Now, however, pent air remains the cheaper stock, trading at a little more than 15 times next year's earnings estimates. It's probably my favorite under-the-radar infrastructure stock right now. So why not go with the cheap one that's already roaring? If you buy Panair tomorrow, I, I can't tell you. No guarantees you'll make money. But I like both of these very much, and Panair could be the star. Finally, I want to highlight a couple of, of general contractors, AECOM and Jacob Solutions. These companies are crucial cogs in the system that allows federal infrastructure funds. They'll get a contract to design and oversee the construction of a project. Then they procure the materials and find subcontractors to do the actual building. These are the guys who are in charge, the GCs. Now, in mid-May, we spoke with Bob Pergade. Now, he is just terrific. He's the new CEO of uh, Jacob Solutions. And he explained that his company is likely to do very well here thanks to its digital platform that helps with the speed and accuracy of project planning. I think 
both Jacobs and AECOM will only make out like banners. But their stocks haven't run that much yet. They're barely up for the year. Don't you see this opportunity? Although they started roaring in, the, in just the recent weeks, AECOM's up more than 10% since the end of May. Jacobs up nearly 12%. But I bet they've got a lot more room to run. I like the look. If you have to rate them, I, mean, I think this AECOM, I think Jacobs is amazing. Pentair is really incredible. Okay, so Deer gets hit by ag, you can buy it. Cat is just sure as can be. Martin Marietta, ah, uh, I mean, what can I tell you? I just think that's a terrific company. So here's the bottom line. Is it a problem that our government authorized massive amounts of spending over the last couple of years, making it much harder for the Fed to beat inflation? Of course. But the flip side is that individual companies and specific industries are about to win some multi-year business from Uncle Sam. And I want you in these stocks. Stay tuned through the rest of the week as we take these spending bills one by one. Because right now they're creating a ton of individual winners and no one, no one is focused on them. So why not try to problem from yourself? Man Money's back after the break. Coming up, Kramer shows off some electric moves. An EV sales recap next. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. It's time to take your career to the next level. With over 150 graduate degree programs, the Catholic University of America, located in Washington, D.C., provides world-class academics with a student experience that educates the whole person, mind, body, and spirit. Whether your professional calling is in engineering, nursing, social work, or any of our other exceptional degree programs, encounter the best of everything that Catholic University has to offer and discover the best in yourself. Learn more today at catholic.edu forward slash gradadmissions. At this point in the Fed's tightening cycle, normally the entire auto complex would be a... The house of pain. But this is a very unusual tightening cycle. We still have just 3.6% unemployment, despite being hit with 500 basis points of rate hikes. And just as important, the auto industry is in a state of transformation thanks to the rise of electric vehicles. House of pleasure. Last Thursday, we got some powerful data on first-half electric vehicle sales from Motor Intelligence. Today, I want to dig deeper into the support because it can tell us a great deal about the state of this business. In the first half, electric sales were up roughly 50% year-over-year. They now represent 7.2% of all vehicles sold in the U.S., up from 5.4% the year before. While the growth has it slowed, it slowed substantially from 71% in the same period last year to 50%, it's still an incredible figure. Hey, by contrast, internal combustion vehicle sales were up 10% in the first half, which is much weaker by comparison, although it's still tremendous growth given how aggressively the Fed's been tightening. So let's do this. Let's take them automaker by automaker. Tesla remains the undisputed king of electric cars, as you know. They had 60.4% market share in the first half. Sales up 30%. uh, And that's year over year, thanks to increased production from their newly opened plant in Texas. Their EV market share actually is down to 10 percentage points, down 10 percentage from a year ago. But that's only because the category is growing so rapidly, and there's no way they can produce enough cars to meet all the demand. So it's kind of an artificial uh, lack of increase. Of course, we already found out that Tesla had huge numbers a week ago when the company revealed it had better than expected second quarter deliveries. The stock soared. 
That said, as much as I adore Tesla, the company, Tesla stock is now up 119% for the year, which could make it tougher to own for the moment. As prudent money managers take profits on some of their monster gains, and you can never, ever blame anyone for doing that. Next, Hyundai Kia was a distant second with the 38,000 electric units sold in the United States, almost 300,000 fewer than Tesla. They were only up 11% year over year, which doesn't cut it in this environment. The other major foreign player, Volkswagen, came in fourth but had 114% sales growth. I go into more detail, but Volkswagen doesn't trade here. You know what does trade here, though? Rivian. While they didn't crack the top five overall, they did have the fourth best-selling electric vehicle, which was also the number one electric pickup truck. Rivian, the stock was a total disaster when it came public at the worst possible time, end of 2021. But its stock has now nearly doubled in the last two weeks, thanks to that tremendous quarterly report that was from last Monday. Big takeaway. Looks like Rivian can meet or beat its production forecast, which came as a huge surprise, particularly to the short sellers. Finally, let's talk about the two big legacy automakers, as I know you want to know about them, GM and Ford. Now, we own Ford for the Chapel Trust. I like both stocks, but honestly, their first half electric vehicle numbers were less than ideal. While GM had 365% electric sales growth, the vast bulk of those with sales were electric Chevy Bolts. GM's just continuing that car later this year. Their newer models, including the crab-walking electric Hummer, so cool, have struggled because the company can't make it up for them because of some battery supply chain issues. Meanwhile, Ford placed fifth with electric sales up 12% in the first half, giving them a 4.6% market share. Now, one of their primary electric offerings, the Mustang Mach-E, was actually down more than 20%, but it was because of production woes. Same issue with GM. They've taken longer than expected to ramp up production. That said, I expect Ford and GM to do better in the future. GM's got several major electric model launchings later this year, including an electric Chevy Silverado pickup truck. Their plan is to produce 100,000 electric vehicles in the second half, although I don't know if they can still make that number. As for Ford, it's now coming on strong after some major production hiccups earlier in the year. You know, we visited them not that long ago. I like what I saw. Last week, we learned that Ford's electric sales were up 35.5% in June. That's a massive acceleration versus the first five months of the year because they're finished retooling their Mustang Mach-E plants. I drove one. I love it. Mach-E sales soared 110% year over year in June. And, of course, electrics are still a small piece of the pie for Ford and GM. Both stocks have been roaring of late. GM's up more than 22% since the end of May. Ford's rallied nearly 26%. Why? Because automakers are still seen as more or less cyclical stocks, meaning they're hostage to the broader economy. And in recent weeks, we've realized the recession might not be inevitable. Certainly when you look at their traditional internal combustion business, these cars aren't selling like we're headed for a severe slowdown. Hey, last week, GM just announced their overall U.S. sales were up 19% year-over-year in the second quarter. Ford said at 11% U.S. growth, with truck sales up 26%. The conventional wisdom told us that the Fed's relentless series of rate hikes would jack up the cost of financing because that is based on the short rates and put a huge dent in auto sales. But that just hasn't happened. In fact, Adam Jonas, terrific auto analyst at Morgan Stanley, raised his price targets for both Ford and GM last week, putting out their core internal combustion engine business has been far more durable uh, than anybody expected. That includes pricing holding up especially well. Now, today we got some news industry data that showed a big cool down in used car prices last month. Uh, now, Jonas actually raised his earnings estimates substantially for both companies. I'm talking huge number bumps. I think he's right. Plus, as Ford and GM get their electric vehicle production back on track, those figures are only going to get better. 
Putting it all together, Tesla remains the dominant player by far in the electric space, but some of these smaller names that we wrote off at the end of 2021 are finally starting to prove their worth, like Rivian, which beat its production targets, made a compelling case that they can keep doing it. Volkswagen's making some real headway in the U.S. market, too. But the bottom line, Ford and GM remain my favorite auto stocks in this environment. Because even after the recent runs, both stocks represent tremendous value, price-to-earnings value, even as they've got some growing pains on the electric, electric vehicle side. If you have to pick up one, Ford's my favorite, as we explain repeatedly to members of the CBC Investing Club, because we own Ford for the Travel Trust and think that this stock goes higher. Rocky in North Carolina. Rocky. Hey, Jim. Good to talk to you. And Same. I know you like to educate and entertain. I just want to say, first of all, most importantly, to my daughter, Jewel. Happy birthday, Jewel. Okay. Oh, Jewel, happy birthday to you. Fantastic. Three days before my <laughs> daughter. What's going on? Thank you. So, Jim, my, my question uh, is regarding Carvana. Um, yeah, I'm trying to explain my daughter. We bought her first car there and had a great experience. Uh, so I looked in the stock several months back. It was crashing. They were talking a billion dollars in debt, maybe bankruptcy. And I told her this is not a good place for our money. It's up like 400 percent, up 40 percent just today. Um. Yeah, and originally I was going to ask you, do I buy it, short it, stay away it from it? It has gone up, so do not short this thing. It's a, it's a rocket ship. I think it's going up a lot. If I were them, I'd offer a lot of stock, and that might be the chance. I do know they are doing very well, though. They're doing very well. I also like CarMax, by the way. Lee in California. Lee. Hey, how you doing, Mr. Jim? Thanks for taking my call. I'm doing good. Thank you. What's going on? Uh, well, we had a really nice EV rally second half of the year, and uh, stocks that are not considered Tesla worthy, but you know we have some nice starters up and moving. Uh, my question is on Lucid. I know previously you've, you've been a little bearish on it, but well, it's moved twenty five percent the last month. It's been, so. it, yeah, but remember, it's been a terrible stock. I don't mind that I, I got bearish on it. I do think that they're all moving up. I prefer Rivian to Lucid because I think Rivian's got the real winner in this space. Right, Ford GM remain my favorite auto stocks this environment, though. Even after the recent runs, both stocks still represent tremendous value. As these two automakers get their electric vehicle production back on track, their earnings are going to get much, much better. Hey, by the way, there's much more mad money yet, including my exclusive with former CFTC chair Tim Masson. After the SEC's crackdown on Binance and Coinbase, Masson's arguing that we're still in need of a whole new regulatory framework for crypto, and I agree with him. Let's talk to the man himself. Then, hey, get what? Strong IPO and M&A markets. Uh, they have felt that you didn't see it, but I'm going to break it down and show you that there is some real good news in those sectors. Two corners of the market were really coming back. I'm going to give you my take. And all your calls rapid fire in tonight's edition of the Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. This weekend, the Wall Street Journal published an incredibly prescient op-ed on crypto regulation. But and this was by former SEC Chairman Jay Clayton and former CFTC Chair Tim Massett. This is the second time they've teamed up to offer guidance on how the government can rein in the Wild West. It's the cryptocurrency space. It's got me so worried. This time, Clayton and Massett were reacting to the SEC's recent crackdown. Some of the larger crypto exchanges, including Binance, kind of a shady outlet, and Coinbase, publicly traded. And they argue these isolated enforcement actions may not be enough. We need a whole new regulatory framework to deal with digital assets. But don't take it from me. Let's go directly to the source, to Tim Massett. He's the former CFTC chair, who's now the director of Digital Assets Policy Project at Harvard's 
Kennedy School of Government, classman at Minor Harvard Law. In addition to being a non-resident fellow at Brookings, Mr. Madison, welcome back to Mad Money. It's great to be on, Jim. Tim, I've got to tell you, I thought this piece was terrific because as much as I think that the SEC is trying to do a good job regulating, you know what? Regulation by litigation has never really fulfilled the goals of what the people want or the, the, even the regulators. So how about your uh, let, let's just talk about your proposal and how it would change the world. Sure. Well, first of all, we strongly support enforcement of the laws. But what we're saying is we need more than that. And the reason is twofold. One is litigation takes a long time. And quite frankly, the crypto industry may find it's in their interest to stretch these cases out because they may be hoping for a change in regulatory attitude with the 2024 election. The second reason is it won't resolve all the issues that we need to get resolved. So what we're saying is let's do something as well, which is have the SEC and the CFTC get together and set some investor protection standards that are going to apply to these trading platforms as they exist today. So we're saying don't litigate, well, or rather don't get hung up on the question of is a particular token a security or not. That can be litigated as the SEC is doing, but we need investor protection standards today that apply. And frankly, the standards we need are largely the same, regardless of what bucket you put a token into. So the way this would work is the two agencies would get together. Ideally, they would create a self-regulatory organization that they would tightly supervise. And that would then come up with some basic standards on protection of customer assets, prevention of fraud and manipulation, prohibition of conflicts of interest, uh, reporting requirements, record-keeping requirements. And those would apply to any platform that trades Bitcoin or Ethereum. That gets you the whole market, right? There's no platform that's uh, relevant that isn't trading uh, those two tokens since they represent so much of the market. I can't agree more. I mean, you've got Fidelity saying, look, we'll take your Bitcoin. You have, now you have BlackRock talking about Bitcoin. I fear right. that without your message, what's going to happen is we don't know what we're doing. We're going to put money in it. We're going to get hurt. But things, this is all happening too quickly. And it's absolutely true that what you're getting is a new regime that's too fly by night for all of us. Well, that's right. And see, the thing about the enforcement cases is, as much as I strongly support them, there are no temporary restraints on these platforms while those cases are being litigated. So frankly, the platforms can just go on business as usual, making a lot of money without any good investor protection standards in place. So what we're advocating is essentially an incremental step. Let's put those standards in place now on these platforms as they exist today. So it cuts through some of the complexity. It deals with the core of the problem. And if you do this through a self-regulatory organization, and again, by that, I don't mean the industry running off and deciding how to regulate themselves. I mean something that the SEC and the CFTC tightly supervise, approve the rules, approve the board members. But if you do it that way, you can actually impose the cost of this on the industry itself. Well, Tim, are we always going to be hung up on this notion of whether something's a security or not? 
Because if it isn't a security, or if it is, there are people who want to own this so badly, Tim, that they don't care about the, that what is to some just a nuance. Well, and that's partly what we're saying. We're saying that's an important question. But put that aside for a moment, if you will. Let's not get hung up on that. Or rather, let's have a parallel track, which says, regardless of the classification issue, we need standards today. So you put these standards in place. The SEC can still litigate over whether something is a security or not. But frankly, Jim, here's the problem with this whole debate about whether it's a security or not. We don't have a disclosure regime in place today that gives you the information to decide whether something is a security, right? Because a security turns on whether essentially there is some common enterprise and you are expecting uh, profit, you're expecting an increase in value from the efforts of that common enterprise, from that managerial effort. Well, without disclosure about these tokens, you don't know. Are the developers still involved? Do they control the tokens still? Who controls the software? Who can, who can change it? Who's benefiting? So part of our proposal is also that before a platform could trade a token, there needs to be some baseline disclosure about it. And then the SEC can say, hey, you know what? We're looking at this disclosure. We have some concerns. And then they can decide you know, to focus on particular tokens and say those are still securities. But we'll have in place some basic investor protection much well, faster this way. I think, Tim, there are a lot of people who feel that the SEC wouldn't go for that. I actually don't feel that at all. I think the SEC has been put in a position as to litigate, but they would very much like to have some clear rules to follow and therefore would not be out there objecting to what you're talking about. Well, we'll see. I mean, look, I think it would be easiest for them and the CFTC if Congress mandated this. If Congress right. just said, we want the two agencies to do this. And frankly, that would be something that I think you could get a much broader base of support within Congress because it's not going to change the SEC's power. It's not going to change the CFTC's power. It's an add-on, if you will. And, you know, a lot of the proposals today, they're very complicated. They involve rewriting the securities laws. And, you know, a lot of people have concerns about those, including myself. Now, actually, if we did wait for the 2024 elections, people are playing for time. It may work out to be in favor or against the people who want crypto. I don't know why they're necessarily wanting to do that. Why not do it now before we all lose? We stifle innovation because of litigation or people go to Europe where they're really now way ahead of us. Well, I couldn't agree more. I mean, that's why we're advocating this. We really think that, look, we need to get some basic standards in place. This is a way to do it without having to rewrite the securities laws. Because when you get into rewriting the securities laws or the derivatives laws, you risk creating you know, a lot of unintended consequences, a lot of loopholes that you didn't mean to create. Um, this is a way to get investor protection standards into the industry as it exists today without having to fundamentally change uh, the securities or the derivatives laws. Well, that's exactly what we need. I'm so glad you wrote the piece. It finally gave me the clarity that I know to start rooting for because it's what must happen in this country. Tim Mass is the former CFTC chair, research fellow at Harvard Kennedy School. You should read this piece. It's filled with what I call common sense. Mid Money's back after the break. Thank you, Tim. Coming up. What's in your mind, Kramerica? Give us a call. The lightning round is storming the NYSE. Next.
Of course, one of those said, Taylor, bye bye, just to go down to the spider sound. And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready, Ski? Dance over the lightning round, Curtis Master with John, New Jersey John. Well, Jim, how are you doing? Been trying to get in touch with you since June the 23rd, my birthday. And I'm going to thank you for picking up your phone. Oh, yeah, boy, yeah, I yeah, yeah. Give a little jam there. What's going on? Shout out to Joe Klecko for making the Hall of Fame. My buddy I went to Temple with and all the people that helped take care of my 95-year-old mother. And I've been trying to get in touch with you since my birthday. All Your good birthday. news. All good news. Let's make some money. What's going on? IEP, Coral Icons got more. Well, I mean, look, IEP now looks like the regulatory issues are solved, and therefore I think the stock probably has another 10% to go to go the higher. Let's go to Joe in New York. Joe. Oh. Hey, what's going on? Oh, you tell me, Joe. I'm not just doing my show. What's okay. happening? It's up from Long Island and uh, okay. calling from Santa Fe. The stock of the day that I'd like to find out about is Rambus, R-A-M-B-U-S. You know, high-speed chip, chip interface is finally making a comeback. I think I cannot believe this stock. Well, it does make money. It makes money, so I'm going to endorse it, but I cannot believe how long it's taken to get to where it's going. David in New York. David. Hey, Jim. How are you? Long time. I'm doing well. Thank you, sir. Uh, all right. Uh, question. Uh, Palantir, what do you that think? That was a great quarter, Palantir. I remain a buyer. I even told the CFO that recently. He was a little skeptical of my own intentions, but I like Palantir. Let's go to Kenneth in South Carolina. Kenneth. Booyah, Jim Kramer. You Booyah. are the man. I try. What's going on? I've got a statement and a question. Okay. There's a small cap pharmaceutical company called Coheris. Yes. Ticker symbol C-H-R-S. Right. That's developed Usimri, which is a biosimilar of Humira, a $20 billion drug developed by AbbVie. Right. Coherence sells okay. its drugs for 15% the price of Humira. It is a $5 stock with a $23 price target. Can the healthcare providers? Well, I think it can. It can, but you know what? I've got to tell you, it's a very hard drug to make. I think it's in, look. It's a good spec. Let's just leave it at that. I need to go to Mike in Louisiana. Mike. Hey, Jim. This is Mike from Shreveport, Louisiana. Oh, Plus, good to have you, man. Too good to have you. What's going on? Oh man, I'm I'm uh, looking at a company. I'm considering a position in. I'd like your thoughts on commercial metals. I've liked that company for 30 years. I like the metal recycling business. I think it's terrific. Second only to Nucor as far as I'm concerned. That group is going to richer now. Oh, no. Then that, ladies and gentlemen, conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Coming up, IPOs have been sleepy and M&As have been in hibernation. But can this bear awaken and turn into a bull? Find out next. Booyah, Jim. I love you, man. I've been watching you from day one. Thank you for all the wonderful advice that you provide us. I'm learning so much watching your show. Watch your program every day. I love it. Always wanted to say booyah on your show. Thank you for being the greatest in the world. We consider you the money market maker, and we thank you for all you do. I love your show. I long time fans of your show, and we think it's the most entertaining program on TV. nearly two years since we've had a decent IPO market. It's been even longer since we had a good M&A market. These two 
droughts have crushed the profitability of all the major banks because that's their bread and butter. That's what makes these firms hum. Without IPOs or mergers, they just can't get any earnings traction, let alone upside surprises, which is important to keep in mind since they begin reporting later this week. But heaven knows, what if things are, spare me, you got to listen to me here, what if they're getting better? I know nobody thinks that way, but I want to point out that there's going to be some good news on these two fronts for the major brokerage houses. First, we had a big IPO not that long ago. The restaurant chain Kava, a popular Mediterranean cuisine experience. Kava came public at 22, immediately roared to the mid-40s. Not a small company. Had a $2.5 billion valuation at the IPO price. There was some concern that Kava would give up that huge first-day pop, given how terrible the market's been. But it didn't happen. In fact, today, eight analysts initiated coverage of the chain, which has about $2.5 billion in sales per average unit, a very big number. And the stock moved up again, tacking on 11%. Hey, listen, I got to tell you, six of them read like you buy, buy, buy. Now, I know the common deal by itself means nothing, but the good people at Renaissance Capital do fantastic work keeping track of these issues. Have noted there's been a slew of IPOs since then, like Savers Value Village. It's a thrift store, $3.7 billion valuation. It worked 27% on its debut. Hey, or get this, a wild, uh, this is wildly popular Korean barbecue chain, including on our own Man Bunny staff, Jen Restaurant, which gave you a 28% first day pop if you were lucky enough to get in. Now, I'm hearing good things about two upcoming biotech deals, Apogee Therapeutics and Sagamet Biosciences, along with our first direct listing in nearly two years from an outfit called Surf Air Mobility, which has ambitious plans for regional airline with a fleet of electric aircraft. Hey, we'll see how that goes, but it's encouraging to see a steady flow of deals once again, especially biotech deals, which can really pop. Of course, there have been a couple of duds. Kodiak Gas Services, up, eh, nothing to write about them there. But for the most part, if you can get in on these new deals, I think you're going to make a lot of money because that's where we are in the IPO cycle. But don't let them dissuade you from getting into these deals. That's when the most money in a new IPO cycle gets made. To this point, the Renaissance IPO index has rallied 34.6% year-to-date versus 14.9% for the S&P. And here's a bit of a shocker. Do you know that there have been 52 IPOs priced so far this year, which is up 33% from the same date last year? Too early to say the drought is over. But we need to start accepting that things are coming around. The worst is over. Maybe some free money being made here. How about M&A? All right, we've seen a chill in this lucrative line of business because of the FTC chair, Linda Kahn, who is incredibly hostile to mergers. She just loves trying to block them. Even when there's no good reason, the fact that it's a merger is reason enough for her to block it. But here's an important caveat you may not know about. The FTC doesn't have the final authority to unilaterally stop mergers. You can take the agency to court. You can beat them at their own game. Right now, Microsoft's trying to buy Activision Blizzard, the video game publisher, and most previous FTC regimes wouldn't, wouldn't even bother to scrutinize this. Oh, but not Khan. Khan's dead set against it. Rather than walk away, though, Microsoft has chosen to fight the FTC in court. This week, we're likely to find out if the judge will agree to the deal or block it. If the judge greenlights the acquisition, let me tell you something. And, oh, by the way, there's still some regulatory issues overseas. I'm not overlooking that. But it would be a huge loss for the FTC. And I mean, I think it would heat up the M&A market at the exact same time. Of pleasure. Now, any of these bits of information taken in its own self would just be meaningless. But if you take them together, it could mean good things for Goldman Sachs, for J.P. Morgan, and for Morgan Stanley. The trust owns that one, all of which are about to report. I don't expect their numbers to get an immediate boost. I am saying that this is how it always starts. A few good IPOs here and there, a big takeover that succeeds. So before you give up on the investment banks, remember that you may be selling at the bottom. Because while no one else is saying this, I think these stocks could be 
about to get substantially better because of IPOs and M&A. I like to say there's always bull market summary. I'm starts by just for you right here on Mid Money. I'm Jim Kramer. See you tomorrow. Last call starts now. All opinions expressed by Jim Cramer on this podcast are solely Cramer's opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, or their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by Cramer on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Jim Cramer as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. Cramer's opinions are based upon information he considers reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warn its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Mad Money Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash disclaimer. It's time to take your career to the next level. With over 150 graduate degree programs, the Catholic University of America, located in Washington, D.C., provides world-class academics with a student experience that educates the whole person, mind, body, and spirit. Whether your professional calling is in engineering, nursing, social work, or any of our other exceptional degree programs, encounter the best of everything that Catholic University has to offer and discover the best in yourself. Learn more today at catholic.edu forward slash gradadmissions.